You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Paris. On a quiet street. In an old building. A dead woman's vacant apartment is waiting. Waiting for the tenant. Roman Polanski is the tenant. In Chinatown, he exposed the dark side of corruption. In Repulsion, he explored a warped mind. In Rosemary's Baby, he examined the occult. Now, the tenant. Something altogether new, altogether chilling. No one does it to you like Roman Polanski. Lieutenant, a Roman Polanski film coming from Paramount Pictures. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jamie Duvall. I have returned because no one does it to me like the Projection Booth. Also joining us this week is Mr. Alex Winter. Hey, you guys. It's really, really good to be here. This week, we're discussing the 1976 film from Roman Polanski, The Tenant, adapted from a book by Roland Topor. The film also stars Polanski as Trelkovsky, a man in need of a new apartment. He finds one where the previous occupant has defenestrated herself. After her death, he's able to move in and finds that his neighbors don't like him being noisy. In fact, they don't really like him at all. Some put this alongside Polanski's Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby as his quote-unquote apartment trilogy, and I won't argue against that. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Tenant, turn off the podcast and come back later after you've seen it. We will still be here. Now, Jamie, when was the first time you saw The Tenant, and what did you think? My fixation with Polanski started when I was a teenager, so The Tenant was... uh Definitely one of those films that I saw in home video around that period of time. I was uh, enamored with the kind of the puzzle aspect of it. Also, <clears throat> how much it may or may not reveal about the filmmaker himself. Uh, a lot of people think this is his most personal movie. It's definitely worthy of exploration uh, in terms of kind of a, a, a self-portrait of sorts. How about you, Alex? I've always loved this movie, and I came to Polanski quite young. And, you know, I, I grew up in, I started to come of age, you know, as a, as a child in the Watergate era um, and in the era when there was a lot of paranoia and dislocation and disassociation post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, which is what this movie is. And so I remember, I remember this is one of the movies that gave me nightmares <laughs> when I was a kid after having watched Nixon on the news and all the, the, the insanity going on. But Polanski in general, to me, was someone that I loved. My parents worked at a university. I went to a lot of movies at the university, and I became really enamored with Dunwell and uh, other surrealist filmmakers when I was pretty young. And this, you know, Polanski fit into that world for me mentally, and it's kind of always fit into that world more than um, into some of the buckets he tends to get put into. Those are the films of his I tend to like the most. I came to this one a little later than I probably should have. I remember there was a video store near me closing down, and they were selling all of their stock for cheap. And The Tenant was one of those titles that they were selling. So picked this up on VHS. I had seen 
Repulsion, and quite a few others of his works, um, including Pirates, for whatever reason. I think it used to play on cable. I, When I was working at Blockbuster Video and people would come up to me and ask me for recommendations of horror films, no matter what reason it was, people would always ask me for a recommendation of horror films. I would always point them to Repulsion because I saw it, I loved it, and I thought it was one of the most terrifying films ever. Had I seen The Tenant at that point, I probably would have pointed them to that one as well. I think The Tenant is a little bit more accessible. It's in color. It's much more American, even though it takes place in France, and they don't hide the fact that it takes place in France, which I really kind of appreciate. But this movie, it's so haunting. And there's a lot of, to me anyway, and feel free to to disagree, guys, but I feel there's a lot of Hitchcock when it comes to this film. Of course, I'm seeing a lot of Rear Window right from the beginning, but then also Psycho with the voyeurism and, well, Rear Window with the voyeurism, but I guess because of the the bathroom aspect of things and some of the spying that Norman Bates would do, it reminds me of that when I see so many of these scenes taking place where our main character is looking at a bathroom and trying to figure out what's going on inside of there. The Hitchcock that this borrows from is a movie called The Lodger, which was made in 1927. You know, it, it grows out of a kind of a long line of apartment uh, existential thrillers. Um, I really don't know how else to categorize it. I wouldn't really categorize The Tenant as a horror movie, a straight up. Or Repulsion. I think Rosemary's Baby fits more classically into that mold. But I don't think that Repulsion and The Tenant do. I think that, you know, I would agree that they come much more out of, uh, you know, an early European tradition, both in literature and in and in cinema, and Hitchcock was very much a part of that, especially his early British work. Um, and then think of Fritz Lang's M, I'd say, is another film that fits squarely into this. It's, you know, using using cinema, using camera angles and music, and for lack of a less pretentious way of putting it, the whole idea of mise-en-scene to create an atmosphere is really comes out of that tradition, both of the novels and the early films. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, that I love about this movie, when I, and Repulsion as well, but I would agree more so the tenant in some ways for a number of reasons it has a sort of a classical old european quality to it and that's why it's always struck me as somewhat autobiographical even in an abstract sense because it it kind of evokes what it must have been like for polanski as a child you know hiding in the warsaw ghetto and trying to stay alive from the nazis and that feeling of terror and being the other and these sort of ghoulish people that you know a year before just seemed like your normal grocer or butcher or whatever are now monsters who killed your parents. And I think there's a lot of that sort of abstract ideas are evoked in, in the movie cinematically, which is, I think, keeps it something I can go back to again and again. When you're playing in this wheelhouse, it's almost impossible to avoid Hitchcock comparisons. Even though you're right, there are overt references to particular Hitchcock movies. I like what Alex just said, because I, I see a lot of those themes as well in terms of Polanski's own journey, which is mainly the persecution of the outsider and, you know, seeing what Polanski has gone through in his life, why would you trust the comforts of uh, domesticity? So uh, really those are, those are the two things I focus on when I, when I see the tenant because they echo what, what Polanski's journey has been. I think the thing too, that always calls me to Hitchcock is the idea of, 
so many of the opening credit sequences or opening scenes of a Hitchcock film can contain clues to what is going to happen later on, might even contain the ending of the film if you interpret it in a certain way. And the opening credits of this are remarkable in the way that we have this roaming camera, the way that we start on this empty window and then we have this uh, Polanski fading in and the camera tilts down, tilts back up and there's a woman standing there and the way that Polanski will appear and disappear in these windows as we go along. And it just, the whole replacement of Polanski with the woman is interesting because that's really the whole movie in a nutshell as we, we go through here. And then also, I mean, I love staircases, especially in Hitchcock films, and that great shot when uh, we have Trilovsky coming in and uh, talking with Shelley Winters, who, when she was doing these roles later on in her career, in her career were always interesting roles, uh, no matter what the film, whether it be um, you know Cleopatra Jones or whatever. But in here, she's this uh, concierge. And her walking him up to the apartment shot from below makes them look like they're actually descending instead of ascending. And the way that she reacts, she's so gleeful to show him the apartment, but moreover to show him the place where the previous tenant had jumped out of the window. And she's just like, come on, come on, let's look like it's the most exciting thing in the world. And then the way that she manhandles him and is constantly putting her hand on his back as if she's going to shove him out of the window. I was just like, oh, my God, we're five minutes into this movie and I'm already on the edge of my seat. (laughs) The previous tenant threw herself out of the window. (laughs) You can still see where she fell. Look. She's not dead yet. Though she might as well be. What if she gets better? Don't worry, she won't get better. You know, you're on to a good thing here. I love to a point that, that Jamie made is, is you know, in regards to, to Shelley Winters, you know, I think that uh, when I went back and watched the movie again, it really struck me how much, uh, and again, it may be somewhat subconscious though with Polanski, I doubt it, you know, a, a metaphor it is for his Hollywood experience, which was in complete turmoil at that time and was about to become... And a living nightmare, you know, which he, to some degree, obviously, uh, largely had imposed on himself, but but was going to be um, very impacted by within the next couple of years. But you know, this is just post Chinatown, and you're dealing with a, a movie about a an other uh, who moves into a building um, in Europe, occupied and run by pretty garish, what you could call ugly Americans. The building is not run by Europeans. You know, it's run by Melvin Douglas and Shelley Winters, and and they have this very garish. You know, I had this sneaking suspicion, and I I don't want to say anything untoward, but you know, to me, Melvin Douglas is like the studio head, and Shelley Winters is his agent. You know, and I I don't mean this literally at all. So you know, I don't <laughs> care about it on sort of a, on a literal level. But there's this this whole aspect to the film of somebody being. Um, an outsider around people who are sort of outwardly very welcoming and warm. But as you just said, there's a feeling at any moment they may shove you out the win- window. And very famously, you know, Polanski was was completely abandoned by his agent immediately uh, when the scandal broke out, you know, around the uh, the rape um, accusations. And and then he was he was literally booted out the window of Hollywood shortly after this movie was made, which is interesting. I like that reading of it. And by the way, if you have to cast the role of an 
of an overbearing person. Is anyone better suited for that than Shelley Winters? I mean, it, seems, it seems like that, that that became kind of her stock in trade. There are very um, few roles but, she wasn't suited for. Right? <laughs> she wasn't yeah. perfect. I don't know if you guys have seen The Visitor, but she is amazing in that as this kind of you know, kind of uh, amazing housekeeper, a little bit demonic in the way that she slaps the one of the main uh, child actresses. I guess kind of like how Roman Polanski slaps a child in this movie, too. A lot of kids slapping in these 70s films. But that roaming shot, I guess it's a crane shot uh, that, that opens the credits, is remarkable. And it sets that mood at once. Uh, I mean, his his cinematographer was uh, Nick Fist. It was uh, Bergman's longtime DP. And the the movie is told in a very classical fa- fashion, so it doesn't really... It, it's not a showcase for camera gymnastics, which I also very much appreciated about it. It's a very different movie than Repulsion in that way. You know, it's, it's, it's more, it looks like a Louis Malle movie. Um, and yet it's bananas. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's effective about it as well. But I also think that, that it's one of the things that probably threw the critics because Repulsion uh, again, to Jamie's point, is is all camera gymnastics, right? It's all you know, cameras in crazy places and odd angles, and it it says what it is. Um, you know, here's this beautiful woman who's actually completely insane. It's it's much more baroque, and this film becomes baroque uh, in some ways as it goes along. But it it you know, it's largely shot, you know, written and shot. I mean, the original adaptation was was done by Edward Albee. It has this sort of gloss, and yet it has this really tawdry. And depraved undercurrent, and I think that that really threw critics for a loop because it's, it's not exactly clear on its face what it is. Of course, in some ways, it's, it's absolutely clear what it is. He's making a point about you know the depravity that's underneath you know the seemingly uh, you know benign and and civil society that we live in. But it's amazing, you know, the the, the disparity I think between what the movie is and how the movie looks. I'm wondering by taking that kind of classical uh, approach to it, if it wasn't because the, the story was loony enough. I, I mean, at a certain point, if you add that to, to the movie stylistically, that kind of lunacy to the camera, does that distract from the experience? I mean, would it be too much and would calling attention to it, <laughs> to the story elements in the camera, would it actually distra- distract? I, I think so. I think that, yeah, it's thematically, I think it's thematically wrong too, because I think the film is all about what appears to be civil society and what is actually going on under the surface of that society. So you can't, I don't think you could have constructed it in a way that you presented civil society as already insane. I think you'd have nowhere to go. You know, it is, it isn't, I mean, just to circle back for a second, it is a, it, a crazy movie in terms of its Hollywood trajectory. It was it was a movie that was supposed to be for Jack Clayton of all people, you know, who, who developed it and was working on it while he was working on The Great Gatsby. He had Edward Albee do the original adaptation. He was all set to make it. Barry Diller basically stole it from him and gave it to Polanski, who's clearly more suited for it. But it never, you know, unlike Rosemary's Baby, it never grew up out of this kind of genre, you know, genre horror landscape. It came from the type of people that would have put The Godfather together, which is bananas. 
to me. Yeah, I can't imagine what that version would have been like. I mean, the the way that it ended up, it's it would have been terrible. The way it ended up, it's it's pretty darn close to Topor's novel, and then Topor and Polanski having such similar backgrounds. I mean, they're both Polish Jews who ended up living in France, and you know, they're just a few years apart in age difference. Topor did not have the experience that Polanski did, thank goodness. But I think they share that experience enough that there's a real kinship when it comes to this. So I can't see the Hollywood mucky mucks being able to capture this nearly the way that Polanski did. No, it's unimaginable. I mean, you can't even imagine what that movie would have, would have been. And of course his, his co-screenwriter Gerard Brock, who had done a ton of work with Polanski to this point and would continue to do a bunch of work with him as well. So they definitely had a good working relationship and he seemed to understand the material too. I mean, it's, fairly faithful when it comes to this that we get a lot more of course uh, i can't say it's inner monologue because it's all told from a very close third person but the way that polanski is able to pull off the performance we definitely can kind of understand where he's coming from especially the uncertainty the paranoia the way that even those weird decisions that he makes to rather than just see if madame shul the the former apartment owner if she's going to live or die he ends up wanting to go see her at the hospital and takes her a bag of oranges because he thinks that it's the right thing to do and he the character lives and dies by all of these proper decisions and trying to live within the rules of the society that he's in. But it's one of these things where he can never win, whether he's following the rules or not, he's always losing the game. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. What's interesting about it and what makes it um, controversial in light of Polanski's uh, story is the fact that you can look at it as Polanski identifying with the female, identifying with femininity or what it's like to be a woman, to constantly be watched, to constantly have never be able to you know, do anything right by certain aspects of the society, looking around, even his circle of friends, co-workers, uh, they're very vulgar men for the most part. I mean, you got... You have this one guy saying, oh, you're just like a chick and another guy pissing in the sink. And and I know it's there in repulsion as well. I mean, there's this uh, identification with the, the female, almost like the and, and plus Polanski's own personality that he gives off in the performance. He isn't very assertive. He's not, he's he's kind of impish and a little weak of character. So you can easily imagine that something could inhabit him. Something could impose its will upon him. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I think the gender, the idea of gender can't be left out of, of the conversation on this, because I think that's that's fundamentally what separates this from a lot of other films that are similar, um, even from its era. You know, because, again, just because I, I was actually around, you know, <laughs> probably a little older than you guys, but... I remember that era, you know, you had the conversation and you had taxi driver and you had this and you had sort of a string of movies like, you know, they're not identical, but they're of a similar ilk. You know, this one in terms of, you know, existential, you know, dread and loss of identity and being the other. And, you know, this is really the only one that that examines that Polanski seems kind of like that's why I've always felt it was autobiographical again even if it's a, a subconscious aspect of, of what he's doing it, he's so childlike 
I mean, he's like a little kid, you know, the, the, his character and he has a very childlike, you know, I agree, Jamie, that he's sort of, he's sort of from the very beginning, you could easily see him just stepping into whatever identity is imposed upon him. He's just kind of a pinata that's getting bashed around by everyone, including Simone Schul. And obviously Stella, the, you know, the Isabella Gianni character is kind of this, the, this kind of garish, fear-mongering, you know, sexual female entity, you know, in, in, in the in the way she plays in the film. And that's how she sort of imposes herself upon him as well. It's like he's someone she's someone that he kind of retreats from. I, I don't even know if I've completely ever wrapped my head around, you know, the the sort of the complete thematic idea that he's going for with the gender, but I, I've always really enjoyed this, the disturbing nature of it, that he doesn't just lose himself, he loses himself into a woman. And the way he plays with with femininity, I, I also do see a lot of parallels with repulsion as far as that goes. And it's certainly something that he played with a lot in repulsion. And I've always loved sort of ex- the way Deneuve plays uh, that character and how she really is like a, a frightened, psychotic child trapped in the body of this sort of gorgeous woman um, and with this semi glamorous job. So it's it's a, a really interesting aspect of the tenant. And it, to me, it's always because the film is so abstract. I've never really sort of had a literal interpretation of that aspect, but I've always loved the sort of feelings that it, that it evokes. What I always drew from it, and it's probably completely wrong for his filmmaking, but just the fun of watching it was that when you're the age that Polanski was when he lost his parents and he, he, you know, he was in Poland and he was surviving in the Krakow ghetto and he assumed, he created an assumed name in order to survive. So he's already living with a false identity as a child. You know, his mom is dead. His father is dead. And you, your mind can be open. You can be anyone you want to be when you're living in that kind of stress and with that kind of loss of identity. And as a child, you know, we often play dress up. You would dress up as a, as a girl, you dress up as a guy, you dress up as an old man. You had that sort of freedom. But when you're, you know, a child who has literally lost their parents living in that kind of stress, that's, that sort of childlike imagination is taken to this really intense, uh, extreme. And so to me, I've just always seen his character as this sort of lost child in civil society who can basically inhabit anything. And that's what he ends up inhabiting. There's a Lovecraft story that does that, right? Is it the thing on the doorstep? He ends up being inhabited by a woman, a a weak-willed man ends up being inhabited by this very powerful woman and being subsumed by her. I think it's, I think it's the thing on the doorstep. This is the strength of the movie to me. And uh, so few movies uh, nowadays, we're not used to seeing this level of depth because it's so open to interpretation. It touches upon all of these different uh, themes and and, uh, avenues of exploration that I enjoy the mystery of that. I mean, definitely with any kind of puzzle movie, there'll be viewers that look to come upon their own definitive answers. I enjoy leaving the questions out there because if I happen upon an answer it's almost as if I'm saying, okay, I figured that one out. I'm done with that. The tenant lives with me because I'm not quite sure what the hell is going on, but I know it's touching upon all of these different possibilities, and that's exciting to me. Well, it kind of reminds me of like a Lynch film in that way where you can go back and reinterpret, re-enjoy, re-experience all these things. And there's actually a moment in here where I was reminded a lot of Lynch when they go to visit Madame Shule and she's all wrapped up kind of like a mummy, which we'll talk about later on. 
and that that shot of her mouth and the missing tooth i don't know what it was but i you know the way that lynch will shoot mouths a lot especially in things like fire walk with me with all these close-ups of mouths and then also just the way that Madame Shule was laying there, kind of reminded me of Jeffrey Beaumont's father at the beginning of Blue Velvet. And just that whole thing of that, you know, you were talking about before, Alex, the, the stripping away of the surface level is so much of what, like, something like Blue Velvet is, you know, going under that mat of grass at the beginning and seeing that insect life teeming. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here is like seeing the surface level and then being able to pull that off though it's interesting that our main character it's like he has a vision but most people would say that he's just crazy but it seems like he's seeing the world as it really is when it comes to his visions of things you know certainly lynch i'd say for for me the film um that this most resonates with it just purely subjectively in my mind is eyes wide shut i think that that you know, they're both taken from from, you know, European novels about existential dread. They're both written by Jewish people. You know, they both have an examination of somebody who is kind of weak psychologically and preyed upon um, and allows himself to be preyed upon and, and sort of overtaken by the people around him, especially the women around him. And I think that the, the critical response is similar. I think that people, you know, uh, it's, I had a similar experience to The Tenant, which is why I've always stuck by it which is I really connected with it when I saw it. I just, it wasn't like, you know, a, a critical decision. I just connected with it. And I remember having the same experience with Eyes Wide Shut, where I honestly expected it to be terrible because by the time I went to see it, it had been panned so universally that I just was like, oh, screw it. I'll just go see it because it's Kubrick's last movie. And I was absolutely and completely blown away. And, and you know, to Jamie's point, I, I, it wasn't like I sat there trying to piece it all together. It's certainly, it's not as, as abstract as a, as a Lynch. And I think in some ways it has a pretty straight, you know, linear uh, narrative. But I was just really profoundly and subtly affected on all these different levels in a really similar way to The Tenant, where sometimes I found it frustrating. Sometimes I just got lost and then I would be back on track. But it was always about this character in civil society that's nightmarish. There's actually a lot of similar shots in the two movies. And there's a lot of similarities between Cruz's character and, and Polanski's character. Uh, but they're both movies that I absolutely love that are kind of in their own world and are both let me because we haven't touched on this yet, but in many ways, they're both considered the nadir of those directors careers. And in Polanski's case, obviously, he went on to make some films that were sort of catastrophic, like Pirates. But, you know, the reviews, they took the knives out to him on this one. And they really said he, he, he you know, he was done. I mean, this guy who had just made, in their mind, the great American novel of cinema where Chinatown had just made something that was, you know, a self-indulgent, god-awful mess. And the reviews for Eyes Wide Shut were really, really similar. It's an, it's an interesting, you know, again, I'm not trying to offer some kind of locked-up theory about it. It's just, you know, there, was, there are a lot of similarities between those two projects. I think so, too. I love that parallel that you, you drew between the two movies. Because, I, I mean, with, with Polanski, much like Cruz, you have a character who is, in many ways, ineffectual, uh, impotent, and you have a theme of, you know, the, the place where you call home, a place that should be your shelter, is preying upon you. It's exposing great doubt and internal turmoil within you. I could talk about Eyes Wide Shut for three hours, but, but, and I never considered the, the connection between Eyes Wide Shut and, and the tenant, but uh, that's a really good point. 
I love these subtle shifts that we have. I mean, there are a couple moments where we're kind of breaking through that facade. Like, I'm not sure if his quote unquote date with Stella, like right after they're together at the hospital, they go out and see Enter the Dragon on the big screen. I mean, I was jealous of that, but they go in there and she goes from zero to sex pot within 30 seconds. It's kind of crazy. And I'm like, all right, is this part of his fantasy? Because it just doesn't necessarily seem to ring true. Or is it just that she is, to your point, Alex, a liberated woman and can do whatever she wants? So that's interesting. And then shortly thereafter, he goes to Madame Schul's uh, service. And that gets apocalyptic very fast. That is a really interesting scene, the way that the priest seems to be kind of starting off at a normal tenor and then just builds and builds and builds to the point where it almost feels like he's calling out Trilovsky in the audience, just like, you're thinking about sitting right now and just those crazy like shots of Jesus and that really macabre way that the the priest is being shot i mean just the lights on him and everything just it, it looks like it's out of like a a, a sideshow rather than a, a church you know <laughs> and him trying to get out of the door and everything and just shaking the handle and has to find like the, the smaller door to get out i mean it, it just uh really goes very quickly into some very interesting territory. And I think it just, uh, those are really uh, showing us what is going to happen as this movie progresses. Thou shalt return to the dust from whence thou came, and only thy bones remain. The worms shall consume thy eyes, thy lips, thy mouth. They shall enter into thine ears, they shall enter into thy nostrils. Thy body shall putrefy unto its innermost recesses and shall give up a noisome stench. Yea, Christ has ascended into heaven and hath joined the host of angels on high, but not for creeps like you, full of the basest vice, yearning only for carnal satisfaction. How dare you pester me and mock at me to my very face? What audacity! What are you doing here in my temple? The graveyard is where you belong. The thing about Polanski that is so masterful is that, and obviously it's open to interpretation, the, the thing that I always loved about that Johnny scene in the movie theater was that, again, because he's like a little kid, you know, you just remember being a little kid, and, and as you start to hit adolescence and puberty, and, you know, you have, like, either the school teacher who's, you know, really attractive, or, you have, or someone in your class you have a crush on, what happens to him in the movie theater is almost like every adolescent's, you know, combined fantasy and nightmare. Like, what, what if this girl did everything I wanted to do, but, oh, my God, like, what if she does what, what I want to do? That would be horrifying, you know? And, and it's, it's a great scene because it's, it's, it, he's an unreliable narrator, this guy, this character. So you sort of have to assume that almost everything that happens in the movie is from his perspective, as distorted as his perspective is. It's, it's, he's just taking you on a journey that's completely within his own psyche. And, and Polanski's so masterfully in this early part of the film starts to ramp up the the energy of his his mania you know and then it kind of pops in in those following scenes and then it kind of calms down again it's he sort of lets you know that you're you're on this sort of unstable ride with a a guide that's taking you along this ride including the filmmakers because he's not tipping his hand they're all unreliable well there's also a streak of of mischievous humor in it uh, i mean that that scene where they <clears throat> they visit Simone in the hospital early on in the film, and she, he brings her oranges, and and Isabella Johnny joins him, and and 
and she starts to she starts to cry a little bit and grabs a hold of Polanski and and Polanski kind of looks aside and and like a childish giggle comes out of him you know this attractive girl is holding on to me I can't believe my luck I like that streak of humor in it too the shifts are so subtle when it comes to some of this stuff, like the whole, we have been talking about femininity, and it's almost the feminization of this character. It kind of reminds me of that tea that they would give to uh, the main character in Rosemary's Baby, where it's like kind of helping her uh, become more pliable and everything. When in this case, it's the coffee versus the hot chocolate versus the chocolate and the cigarettes and giving Polanski's character the same thing that Madame Jules would drink the same uh, brand of cigarettes that she would smoke you know and I kept thinking is there something in that hot chocolate is that affecting him but I know there there isn't but it's just like the way that they would give Rosemary that tea it's like you know they're constantly like oh yeah you're sitting in the same seat that she sat in and when he tries to rebel against that at one point and comes in and sits down in a different seat you know makes this big point I, it's it, like you were saying, it is very much like a little kid, like, well, I'm not going to do what you expect me to do. And he pops himself down in that other one and just kind of comes out guns blazing. And they're just like the way that they treat him like he's crazy because, well, frankly, he is. But just like, what? We're not trying to get you. I'm sorry that we don't have your cigarettes. The way that they make him feel like he's nuts because they have been, at least it feels from his perspective, that they have been shifting him more towards Madame Shul. It's something, you know, you guys were talking about it earlier, but that's something that is always present in Hitchcock. I mean, there's there's so many, I have so many shots imprinted in my brain from his entire career of people being offered a cigarette or a cup. Uh, I mean, you think of Notorious, which is, I guess, the, the obvious one. But it's, it's you know, and there's always the, the sort of wide-eyed person who we're relating to just going, Jesus, do I take that thing? And then what does it represent and, you know, how you're being imposed upon um, by characters that may, you know, be out to kill you. But I, I think it's true that what's really fun about this movie is, is the, the sort of wild nature of it that, uh, that the, the central character is so completely unhinged, but unhinged in an entertaining way. So he, he, there is no real anchor for our own psyche. There's no sort of restful place for us to sit. I think that's what really struck me about Repulsion when I saw it, um, was that sense that you, there was nowhere to sit that was comfortable. Like it was just, you were, you were going to be as upended as the central character. Um, I think, you know, to Jamie's point, obviously this movie has a lot more humor than, uh, Repulsion does, more outward humor anyway. Um, and that kind of eases the, the, the pain of having to live with this protagonist that's that bananas. Well, that stuff with the with the drinks and the the cigarettes and and looking through her personal belongings and that's, I mean, you could see those as articles of transference. Like those those are items that allow him to absorb Simone. Uh, and and in terms of the the madness aspect that you just touched upon, it's been many years since I've revisited uh, Repulsion, but her kind of psychological decay that that's made more obvious in repulsion than it is in the tenant, isn't it? It, it does isn't the tenant a little bit more ambiguous as to whether he he's he's crazy from the beginning? Oh, for sure. I mean she's a hyper Deneuve is a hyper neurotic from frame one. I mean she's she she doesn't you know she becomes more unhinged, but she's a sort of a sociopathic neurotic from the very beginning of, of the film. Uh, the thing is I think that that with the tenant 
it's it's true that he's less sort of outwardly neurotic, but you know, to the point of the Ajani scene we were talking about earlier, it's made clear really early on that we don't know whether he's seeing the world accurately or not. Like things happen in such an overt way. And as an audience member, you're, you're used to, I mean, and Polanski knows this and he's playing with it, you're used to identifying with the protagonist. So if the things start happening that are completely outside, because the film is not, I think, again, that's what got it nailed by the critics uh, in a similar way to Eyes Wide Shut, where you're looking for one genre and it kind of defies the genre. It's not Rosemary's Baby. It's not, it's not raising, I don't think, um, or certainly never has for me. It's not raising a central question of is this really happening or is it? There's never a point where I really assume that, you know, they have lizard tongues and weird eyes. And I mean, I, you know, I generally have assumed that he's he's losing himself. And it's more of a film about identity and existential dread and, and you know, fracturing and dislocation and more of a kind of surrealist kind of tale of, of identity than it is you know, a, a horror film, which just raises the question of, is this happening to him or is, is the world crazier as he? Um, so I have always kind of taken it at face, face value that his character is, is unhinged. Well, they really pull back the veil or he pulls back the veil uh, around what is it? An hour and 15 minutes into this film. And I want to talk about pacing shortly, but the way that we have that choking scene when he's walking down and is surprised by one of the characters and, we see it flip from his perspective to the real world back to his perspective. And it is the character is choking him, but he's choking himself. And that's the moment where if you've doubted that he's crazy, it is just right there laid out for you. Yes, this is happening in his mind, which is really smart that they do that, that it isn't one of these things where it's like, are they or aren't they? It's like those things with the lizard tongues and all that, that happens after this. So we know what's happening in his mind when we see the old couple that hit him with the car and he's seeing, you know, Melvin Douglas and his wife, but it's really this other couple. So he's being fully obvious with that, but yet we're still so invested in this character. We're not just saying, Oh, he's crazy, you know, wipe our hands and we're off to the next movie. We're so invested in this guy already that it's like, Oh my God, is he going to get out of this? What's going to happen? And even though we know he's seeing crazy scenes, uh, you know, the, the God, Melvin Douglas with those kind of bat wings behind him. That's one of the best images around. But even though we know he's seeing this stuff, it's like, it's, uh, these people do feel like they're out to get him. So are they really out to get him or are they not out to get him? I mean, they, they seem like they're evil regardless. And there's another aspect of the film when we talk about the outsider aspect and, and his paranoia and, and uh, I'm not sure where a lot of these people are coming from, what their motivations are. And that's the um, the dubbing in the movie uh, because Polanski wanted to do his performance in English. Uh, he allowed all the other actors to speak in their native tongues. Uh, so as a result, the American release of this movie, it's uh, a lot of the English language uh, is dubbed, which gives the film another sense of disconnection. Uh, and and I'm wondering if Polanski was aware of that when he was putting the movie together, that that would resonate. Just Just the mere act of adding dubbed voices in there. I think so. I think, I think that's a, you know, I think it's a really good point. And I think that he, you know, and he, I believe if I'm not mistaken, I believe he himself did the dubbing for the international versions for his own role. 
because he spoke several languages. I think he did it in French, Polish and English or something like that. But I think it's a good point because, you know, the film is, you know, it's an apartment that's obviously um, a complete international outpost. You know, it is not just, a per, you know, a Parisian built. In fact, it's not a very Parisian building. It is very metaphoric for his own life, which was a composite of Poland and France and America and, and other, you know, European cities and sort of a, a representative of the, the modern civilian at that point, you know, sophisticated modern international civilian and, and what and the world was in such, such a state of, of, of chaos at that time. And it, his, his sense of humor, like his, for me, Polanski's wit, which is, which is really razor sharp. He's always kind of played with movie tropes in that way and been understanding of, and that's the thing I like about him. He's always genre bended. You know, if he's going to make Rosemary's baby, he's not just going to make a straight up castle movie. He's going to make something else, you know, and repulsion certainly has different types of genres wedded to it. I would imagine he was very, very aware of that. And I also think that it has a really great effect on, on the audience, it's just very dislocating, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, and, and obviously Fellini used that, um, that type of effect to great advantage a lot, you know, and sometimes in Fellini movies, someone's mouth would be moving and you wouldn't even hear what they were saying. It had a really dreamlike disorienting effect. Um, and I think that's true you know, in this as well. You know, what's a, another movie, it seems unlikely to compare the, the tenant to William Freakin's cruising, but, uh, I mean, you, you could view cruising as another movie about the other infiltrating a certain society, and that's and that society enters him. But there's also extensive dubbing and cruising that that gives you gives you that same feeling. But of course, the the dubbing and cruising was done as a necessity because I think the protests that met them for all their exterior stuff they were so disruptive that they didn't have good audio of. of some of the dialogue, so they had to re they had to dub everything in a studio, but it does give you that feeling of of dislocation, of not being in your own skin. Of you know, it, 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 I've, it just struck me that there is a similarity between the two of them in that respect. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting, and there's certainly I do think agree. There's a lot of similarities between Friedkin and Polanski on a on a whole host of levels. You know, the, they're stylistically and thematically for sure. I'd never I'd never really drawn that corollary with cruising, but I, I completely see what you mean. I'm kind of surprised that Ajani didn't do her lines in English, and I, I think that the French version of this, and luckily there's a fan edit of this or a fan. Uh, uh, disc of this that has extras and it has preserved the film and it has the French version and it has the English version. But I mean, we get to hear a Johnny do English in uh, possession just three years later. So I know she's obviously more than capable of speaking English, but yeah, it's interesting that because she stands out to me the most as being the dubbed character, you know, everybody else seems pretty close his co-workers definitely it's like okay these guys aren't speaking english before i forget i just want to say that his one co-worker uh, romain boutiel i think is how you pronounce it the guy with the thick glasses he's got just the most amazing face his face is fantastic and i just loved every moment that he was on screen it was almost as good well i think it was actually even better than rufus the the actor rufus who shows up at one point who is still with us today, still doing a ton of acting, and his face is fantastic as well. He's always great at finding 
incredible faces and that that are super evocative. You know, even the, the Simone Schul character is the same. I mean, the, the, I think we, one of you said it earlier, but I mean, just that, that image of her screaming was, was, was one of the most <laughs> profound images from my youth. You know, it just was always in my head. Probably the only image of the film that really stuck with me throughout the years is just, it, but it's, you know, the shape of her face, the way he shoots it, it's something that he's always been really, really amazing at. So watching this again today, I was really paying attention to the time on the, the, the file and just like trying to figure out the pacing because it's really interesting that this movie is two hours and five minutes long. And another interesting thing is there's no end credits whatsoever. When this thing ends, it is over. It is just Paramount logo and out. But we're one hour and 33 minutes in when he goes full bore, 100% dresses up like Simone Schul. And I'm just like, we still have half an hour left. Where can you go from here? Talking about that whole, like, if you start at 10, you can't go any higher. Most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. And, like, if you've got a half an hour left of this... Where are you going to go from here when you're dressed up in drag at this point? Because you would almost think, like, he dresses up in drag, he becomes Simone Schul, fade out, roll credits. But it's great the way that he plays in this last half an hour of film, going back, trying to reclaim who he is, but then eventually becoming Simone once again. And the trials and tribulations of Simone, and again, talking about you know some amazing dream imagery and taking it back to repulsion the way that when he is Simone and he's in his apartment and he sees the people down in the courtyard and there's that that whole thing where he's putting furniture against the window against the door and that hand that comes in and starts grabbing at him it just totally reminds me of the hands that come out of the wall and are trying to grab Catherine Deneuve but it's interesting too that he cuts the hand with a knife, he's stabbing at it, and then he breaks through the window, and his hand gets cut. So I'm just like, all right, how much of that is him cutting himself? How much of that is window, and how much of it is self-infliction? Because we never see who this hand is. It's interesting, too, that the hand comes back, but wearing a glove, which is strange. It's like, okay, within a matter of seconds, but... Just some really super powerful imagery at this point. And like I said, a master class as far as how to sustain this tension throughout the rest of the film. Because most people, as soon as he puts on the wig and the, the stockings and everything, they have no place to go from there. These go to 11. That, that's the end of Dress to Kill, right? I mean, once we find out Michael Caine's the killer, okay, that's it. That's the beauty of this movie, and I, that's the the sophistication of, of Polanski as a storyteller. Is he's not he's not taking you towards a place where there's going to be um, a very resolute answer. He's telling you from the beginning that you're going to be somewhat dislocated. But I would I would argue it's it's not you know anywhere. Near, it's it's a different end game than Lynch for me in the sense that he's not going to draw you into. And I love Lynch, you know, um, he's amazing, but it's just, a, it's a very different experience in the sense that he's, for me, which is more similar to what Kubrick is doing with Eyes Wide Shut, he's taking you into the world of this character and showing you the world through the eyes of that character, and he's going to keep you there. 
you know, and there's at no point are you going to get to step out and have an objective. And, you know, in repulsion, you do, because, you know, as Jamie said, she's a lot crazier. And so as an audience member, you go, well, this chick is really, you know, off the rails crazy. And it's more of a ride in that way. With, with the tenant, a lot of the things that happen to him, like that weird scene with Ajani in the movie theater, are things that happen to you. Like, they're not super crazy. They're like, you know, you can have a, you know, especially if you're, you know, under stress or you're with someone that you're intimidated by or whatever, you can have a, a fearful date. You know, where you're like, oh, is she going to do this or is she going to do that? Or you can have a, 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 a fearful experience with your landlord or your, your, you know, the person who you have to pay rent to or whatever. Um, there's sort of heightened versions of things we already feel. So he, for me, what I love about this movie is that he doesn't ever give you that narrative out of, oh, here's, I'm going to tie it all up with a bow. Now you, the audience, can step outside of this character's head. You just don't get that. Um, satisfaction. And, and that's what I love about the scene, like the thing with the knife, like he doesn't do the filmmaker trick of saying he cuts himself, then he cuts himself in the window. Now we're going to see that it was always only the window and there is no knife. Like he just doesn't give you, he doesn't give you that out. He doesn't ever let you out of the main character's head, um, which A, I think makes for a very sophisticated narrative. I think it also uh, makes a lot of audiences very, and critics, very, very uncomfortable. Of course, after that initial drag scene, what we don't know is that Polanski cut out a scene of a, a psychiatrist explaining how he is both Norman Bates and mother. <laughs> <laughs> really overlong yeah. explanation. Yeah. Yeah. And you almost feel bad when he suddenly he, he goes to Stella for protection, more or less. And when she has called a doctor for him because he is really sick at quite a few points. When she calls a doctor for him, he suddenly thinks that, oh, my God, she's in on it and destroys her apartment, robs her. But in his mind, it's 100 percent justified. She is part of the plot against him so much so that she is there applauding at the end in that special box with everyone. You know, it's like if all the neighbors came out when uh, when uh, Jimmy Stewart was going to be falling off of the his balcony in rear window and just started applauding, you know, and that's this amazing scene of him contemplating jumping off and, and being Madame Schul all the way and looking around and seeing all those neighbors and seeing Melvin Douglas and Ajani and these people in this like royal box applauding his decision that he's going to do this. And yeah, he thinks that she is just as bad as the rest of them at this point. And I couldn't believe that he had the guts to do what he did when it came to throwing himself out of the window, but then crawling back up the stairs <laughs> and throwing himself out the window a second time. <laughs> I've, I, that's one of the greatest, that's one of the greatest things about this film period, the audacity of that ending. And like, you know, as a filmmaker, I've always, I've always fantasized about who, like when he, I, cause I haven't, I don't, I, I haven't re ever read the, um, the, uh, the book. So I don't know if this is actually done in the book. I, I can't imagine that it was, but you just see him and Gerard Brock just like sitting in an apartment at like two in the morning, just like rolling around on the floor. When one of them thought of that, it's like, no, she's not going to just do it once. She's going to like go all the way back up and do it again. It's just such a, an, it's such an inspired idea uh, in terms of screenwriting. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's very ghoul, you know, it's, it's gallows humor, but it's not, without humor. I mean, it, the audacity of it is somewhat hilarious. 
Very much so, yeah. And you see the the other tenants of the building uh, kind of uh, standing outside their windows, applauding and cheering him on, and and it almost looks like they're uh, they're in the theater. I mean, with the with the curtains and everything, it looks like they're almost city sitting up in the in the viewing booth. Uh, and it is it is very macabre. Yeah. Well, they are. Yeah, they are literally in a in a box. I mean, Melvin Douglas is literally in a box seat with a Johnny. It gets, yeah, it all becomes extremely, extremely surreal. And it reminds me in a weird I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of been well in, in this movie uh, for me, just in terms of the, the, the bending of civil society, like exterminating angel. And, and uh, but it reminds me of this ending is of what Benoit wanted to do with the end of Los Olvidados, with putting a symphony orchestra into an abandoned building and just creating this very theatrical uh, catastrophic climax, and uh, it, it's just such a satisfying thing to see. But it is an audacious thing to do from a filmmaking standpoint. So I'm sure it alienates people as well. Well, it certainly alienated Roger Ebert. Did you guys get a chance to read his <laughs> review of this? I, I remember it from the back. I mean, I remember the the response from back in the day, and I just remember the you know the the critical abandonment of Polanski at that time. And this was before his scandal, which I think some people forget. He was just completely roundly you know battered upon by by the critical establishment, which is uh, you know. But I, as I said, I, I think every movie that's done what this type of movie has done has always been panned. Well, I, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to read just the opening paragraph to Ebert's review. It says. Uh, Roman Polanski's The Tenet was the official French entry at the Cannes last May, and in the riot to get into the press screening, one man was thrown through a glass door and two more found themselves amid potted palms. It's a wonder nobody was killed in the rush to get out. The Tenet is not nearly bad. It's an embarrassment. If it didn't have the Polanski trademark, we'd probably have to drive miles and miles and sit in a damp basement to see it. And then it goes on from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I love Ebert. I, I do. But he, you know, he didn't like Clockwork Orange either. And there are films of this nature. And I would put Clockwork Orange in that in, you know, into that that bucket that are very, very destabilizing for a lot of people and for a lot of critics. And of course, he did not like the ending. He did not like the the twist ending and uh, said that it would come as a complete surprise to anybody who had missed uh, every episode of the Night Gallery or the CBS Mystery Theater. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that he was appreciative of the fact that the movie actually ended. Uh, it <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, Ebert was generally a very generous critic that when he did not like something, I mean, much like Hale, he could really come through with a clever jab or two. But I think that anyone that doesn't get on the wavelength of this movie, anyone that finds it confusing and they're not okay with being confused by a movie, um, they can just view this movie as an act of masturbation, you know, on Polanski's part. It's an overindulgement, uh, overindulging, uh, Mind fuck. I'm sorry to curse on your show, but I, that's the only way I know how to express it. It's exactly how critics responded to Eyes Wide Shut. You know, it was an act of indulgence on Kubrick's part, you know, that he should never have made the film, that it was, you know, the act of an older Jewish man. You know, it was he was analyzed as, you know, having marital issues and he was obviously, you know, dealing with his own fears and neuroses. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, but it's it's uh, uh, I would say that there's a you know, there's a, a strand of of surrealism, um, which these movies uh, 
fit into that are destabilizing for the audience. And I think that it partly is because they don't try to answer the questions. But I would say that, you know, like an Eyes Wide Shot and a Tenant, you know, are very different than a Mulholland Drive or a uh, Lost Highway or, you know, a Lynchian type of film, because there is a central character that is going through an existential crisis. And and the, and the movie is cinematically expressing a very specific type of existential crisis. And, you know, it's not as much of a, of a dreamlike free-for-all. And I think that's really makes people uncomfortable because on top of that, and, you know, Hitchcock did this as well, though he did it in a more commercial way. They're sadistic. You know, Kubrick was a sadistic filmmaker. Polanski's absolutely a sadistic filmmaker. You mentioned Friedkin, very sadistic filmmaker. I love him to death. Hitchcock, extremely sadistic uh, as a filmmaker. And Bunuel was, was, you know, openly interested in Marquis de Sade and, and having aspects of of that type of, you know, worldview in his work. You know, people like Ebert, you know, in my my own experience, often rebelled against sadistic cinema. You know, they just like that's you know, he railed against Clockwork Orange. I think he just felt like he was being beaten up on, which he kind of, you know, he kind of is, you know, <laughs> Clockwork Orange is a very sadistic movie, but the movies are extremely effective. And I think that, that, uh, you know, they can be viewed. I, I would also argue that these filmmakers are not sadists by nature. Um, they're, they're doing that. They're creating films of this kind to have a certain effect on the audience and to create a kind of empathic opening between the audience and the work. Um, so I think it's, in my view, it's a, it's just a stark misinterpretation of kind of an agenda that often gets met with with critical dismissal. But I think it's un, I really think it's unwarranted. I think that there's a lot of compassion in the tenant. Um, I think there's a lot of heart in the tenant, and it isn't, you know, t- to me, a, you know, masturbatory indulgence. It's really trying to connect you to, you know, a certain type of life experience that people have, and and I I actually find it very human, but it doesn't, you know, often get interpreted that way. <laughs> I feel the same way, but here's, you know, if you talk about Kubrick's films, yes, most of them were widely panned at the time of their release, but they all got a kind of a critical reassessment and enjoyed a renaissance in popular culture. As a result, has that happened with the tenant? I guess it has where people have gone back and reasserted their feelings on it and thought, yeah, yeah, maybe I was off base. Maybe this is a, you know, a little, a little piece of gold in, in hiding in plain sight. Well, I think that he he didn't have good luck when it came to the timing of this because, as you mentioned earlier, this was this came out late seventy six, September seventy six in the U.S. and I think it was March of seventy seven when the whole scandal broke for him. And I mean, this guy's had nothing but bad times. I mean, this is how many years the tenant comes out. How many years after the Manson murders? I mean, uh, ten? No, eight years Seven. after the Manson murders. Sixty-nine, right? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, the, the guy survives the Holocaust only to have his wife slaughtered by the Manson family, and then this this whole uh, blow up uh, happens. I think that the tenant might have in the the day when movies had longer shelf lives at the theaters. I think that this definitely probably suffered because of the scandal that broke just six months after this. But then also, I did want to say that. People, you know, he had been an actor in his own movies for a long time, you know, all the way back to like, you know, two men in a wardrobe, all these things. And people probably weren't necessarily used to him 
being an actor. And I think that's also the way that they can say that this was self-indulgent, that he's acting, directing, co-writing, all these things, because they might be used to Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown and these kind of films where in Chinatown he just has that kind of more of a cameo role. It's a great, great role. And I love when he shows up in the movie, but it was probably seen as being very self-indulgent as if, you know, Martin Scorsese suddenly decided he was going to star in his next movie. I think people are just like really chafed under the idea of this guy acting and, you know, directing and writing this stuff that it was too much, you know, how dare he. And then, yeah, such a different tone from what he'd given us in Chinatown. And yes, that was hailed as a, an, uh, that horrible term, the instant classic. So, yeah, it, it, it probably had a lot of stuff stacked against it at this point. You know, but he's very good, and uh, his performance is very good in The Tenant. Uh, and 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 it and he he hits authentic notes that are uh, that feel uh, authentic to him that no other actor would be able to replicate. I don't think there's this there's this demure feminine quality about him. There's also a quality about him that's kind of weirdly exotic and sets you a, a little off at ease. And yet he seems eager to please. He seems perfectly pleasant for most of it. I, I mean, it's a, it's a very like kind of odd performance uh, that, that I think it, it comes from a very genuine place in him. Well, and he was always one, too, to know that he was shorter than the average man, and he would play that uh, uh, against stuff. So, like, I can't remember what Nicholson's line is. Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? He knows that his stature isn't such as other people, and he plays with that, that he he is dwarfed by so many of the other actors in here. I think he, he, even Isabella Johnny is taller than he is in this film. And that's interesting that, you know, of course, we're not going to see that in, in going back to Eyes Wide Shut. We're not going to see Tom Cruise shorter than any of the other actors <laughs> in that movie, even though he is. But Polanski had no problem playing that up. And Polanski had no problem going in drag, which is a pretty brave choice for an actor in, at this point. And it was just amazing that he pulled it off so well. There's a real theatricality to the film and to his performance that I, I think is, is really effective, but also really unique to the kind of modern sort of, you know, mainstreamish, for lack of a better word, work that he did. But it is, you know, as you were saying, it's, it's always there in his, in his earlier work. And it's what he, it's the, you know, the education that he came out of. And it's also a big part of the Polish tradition, um, you know, in their movies. And, uh, I think that's also, you know, something that people have had trouble wrapping their heads around with Polanski, but he's always kind of danced between theater and film and opera. And there has always been that, that aspect of, of his work. Um, it never really bumped me at all. And I think it's true. His performance is, is really great and it's really personal and he has a childlike quality to him because of his size and, and just sort of his, you know, he's good enough knowing about faces as we were talking about that he knows what to do with his own face. And, you know, he, he uses his sort of like almost, I don't mean to be disparaging, but almost rat like qualities of his facial structure really effectively in this movie. He's like always sticking a wide angle lens at a really specific spot, like right into his nose. And, um, he's like this kind of, you know, scared rat ferreting around in a, in a, in a maze. And it's really effective. You know, you can't imagine this movie with anyone else in it. Um, it would really diminish its power. I think. 
All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back after these brief messages. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in. <laughs> saying, turn in. How hard is it just to point the damn show? Do it right or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneat.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. is Carl Kolchak. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! (laughs) (laughs) That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. 
You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Be known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there have been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReal.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. We are back and we were talking about The Tenant, and we haven't really talked about the very, very end of The Tenant yet, but I think it kind of, as I'm looking at this film and I'm thinking of other apartment films, and then my mind starts going into hotel films, uh, the, these very specific subgenres, right? And when it came to the apartment films and hotel films, of course, for me, the one of the premier hotel films is The Shining. And we've been talking about Kubrick so much on this episode, it's not even funny. But the end of The Tenant kind of reminds me of that, the cyclical nature of The Shining and that whole idea of you've always been the caretaker, Mr. Torrance. You know, it's just like he's always been himself and Madame Schul at the same time. And I love that that end of it. And I love speaking of wide angles. I love the way that he shoots the end of that from his now hospital bed bound perspective. It is just gorgeous. I love, I love that you brought that up because I, I was actually going to bring up you. You've always been the caretaker too, because there's this sense of, um, and I, I think the, the kind of the Egyptian elements of the tenant bring this out because I think they had a, a similar belief there's this sense that everything is on a, a recurring loop, um, that, 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 that life after life, all of that, it's, it's just, all of it is just occurring in an endless loop. Um, and so that definitely mirrors <clears throat> the Torrance character in, in The Shining and the fact that, no, you've always been here. I mean, you've, you've always been in the, mar- the marrow of this hotel. It, it is, it is in, they're inseparable. Alex, when I first met you in 1999, I know you don't remember this, 1999 hotel room in Toronto, you were doing uh, press for Fever. And I remember saying, oh, this really reminded me, Fever really reminded me of Repulsion. And you corrected me and you're like, well, really a little bit more of the tenant. How conscious of that were you when you wrote Fever? I was a huge fan of, of apartment films. And it wasn't Polanski... 
to me, you know, I love Polanski. So I'll get, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of this movie, but you know, I mentioned the lodger, the stranger on the third floor. Um, I would call, I would really put M in that category. You know, there's a tradition of making these films of, you know, using, uh, sort of a, a tenement apartment or an apartment as like a, 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 a stand in for civil society. And then with the, the, um, you know, the cave of your own psyche being your apartment pitted against the building and, um, you know, the building itself almost having a character of its own. And, um, you know, so I was really interested in that, that, uh, I wouldn't call it a tradition. I think that'd be stretching it, but, uh, films that work that way was, was, I was super conscious of that. And it was a type of movie that, you know, we, with, with fever, uh, intentionally, that entire building was built as a set. It was almost all shot on stages and walls flew and they were built of scrim. It was very theatrical. I was doing in camera, you know, scrim effects with the walls. Uh, so it was, that's what I was really conscious of more than, than the tenant itself as a, as a, a film, sort of the, the type of movies that it grew from. And again, that's why I was so happy when I saw Eyes Wide Shut, which I think I saw right after I finished filming Fever. And when we were making Fever, I really felt like we were like stuck in this weird anachronistic era that didn't exist anymore. And then I saw Eyes Wide Shut and he had the rear projection. He had all these really theatrical in-camera effects that he was using. I was, <clears throat> I was really thrilled. <laughs> But uh, that was those were more the influences, I would say. Um, but I mean, I love I love that movie. I do love The Tenant. I, I think it's great. Yeah, there are so many amazing apartment horror type films. I mean, there's there's the you know things where the apartment building itself really stands in for society. Things like even Dread or um, uh, Delicatessen is another great one. Another film with uh, Rufus in it, I believe. Um, High Rise, of course, that just came out. Well, just came out probably two years ago now, right? But yeah, that, that whole idea of that, the safety inside of there, and I think that you play with that really well when it comes to Fever, is when Henry Thomas ends up going into his apartment, I think maybe even the first time, that it's already been invaded and that it's his landlord and his landlord's mother there and it's like there's no sanctity to that and we kind of get that in the tenant as well when his room is broken into maybe it's broken into maybe it's not broken into but that whole idea of like this is my little piece of the world everybody else should stay out of it and how tenuous that hold is because yeah landlord's got a key landlord can come in whenever you he wants to and that violation sets us off right from the beginning and i don't think it's any small coincidence that then the landlord gets murdered right off the bat in fever <laughs> yeah it was a fantasy of mine i think for my entire life but you know yeah you have this this idea of of a society that's threatening um, and that your your living space is your is your sanctity. You know, of course, the metaphor for this, which I think every one of these films touches on, is that you know the enemy really isn't outside; it's really in your head. And so that sanctity, there really is no sanctity from that. There is no refuge from your own you know phobias and your own fear, your own um, you know dysfunctionality, whatever to whatever degree it exists. But it's, you know, in these types of movies, more than repulsion, which, you know, is a bit more about straight psychosis, you know, you're dealing with with a response to to living in the in the world. It, it isn't just homegrown craziness. You are you are sort of a, a you know, the stressors of the world are imposing themselves on you in such a way that it breaks breaks you down. And, 
you know, I, I would, the conversation fits into that. I think to some degree, taxi driver fits into that. Um, and those are very specific types of movies. Um, but I, I'm very drawn to them. I think they're, they're really, they're really great when they work. Um, and they can, they should have a very, uh, dislocating effect on the audience. There's also this element of, and I'm not talking about supernatural or ghosts appearing or specters or any of that kind of stuff. There's also an element of if you live in a place where something tragic occurred before you moved in. I mean, last time I was visiting L.A., I visited a lot of uh, – it sounds morbid, but it it wasn't. It it wasn't morbid. It felt very sacred. I, I visited a lot of the houses where murders had taken place. There's this tour there called Dearly Departed. And, uh, and I would pass a house like the, like the Dorothy Stratton house, which is now occupied by someone else. Um, and I'm thinking to myself that it would be so disturbing for me as an empathetic person to inhabit a place where something so awful happened, not because of ghosts or spirits or any of that, but just the residue of the trauma that occurred there. I, I, I just, I do feel like something stays behind. Uh, of the experience in a house. And once again, it's going back to the overlook, like may, maybe the structure itself absorbs some of that and it becomes part of the personality of the, uh, of, of the place. Uh, I mean, I, 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 as I'm speaking, I, I feel like I'm sounding like a nut job, but no, uh, I, I would not. I mean, that was honestly, I mean, just speaking personally, that was, that was the whole point of, of fever when we made it was, was, and it came from a very personal experience is when you're living in, you know, you do absolutely, uh, and it's, it's a psychological thing. So I don't think it's crazy. You begin to associate, you know, even the, in, the inanimate aspects of your living environment and the more under the more stress you're under, the more that happens. And in a tenement building, and I've lived in many over the years, you know, if you're either really sick with, with a fever or something where you've been broken down or you're suffering from depression or whatever it is that's breaking your psyche down, you know, if you're up at two o'clock in the morning and the, and that pipe that just won't stop clanging, it's very subtle. It's quiet in the background. And that one neighbor that's maybe three floors down that you just hear a little bit of from time to time, it makes you go bananas. And the, and the actual aspects of the building itself take on a very, very palpable character. You know, to us with yeah. fever, the building, the protagonist was, or the antagonist of that movie was the building. It wasn't anybody else. It was Nick versus the building, basically, but in an abstract way. I mean, I'd completely agree with that. I think that filmmaking is great for that. I think, you know, Magnificent Ambersons does an amazing job with space. Like what Wells does with the house in that movie, I think is, is phenomenal. And you, and one of my absolute favorite movies of all time is uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting which is, you know, about a, a house. It's really about him. I and he shoots a shot. He'll just put the camera on the floor and shoot a door for 20 seconds. And it's fantastic. You can't stop watching it. And it's just a door. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not crazy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not saying you're not crazy. I'm just saying we're both crazy. So, well, you know, we're <laughs> comfort and company. Yeah, I mentioned the Apartment Trilogy, and we've gone back and mentioned a little bit of Rosemary's Baby a few times, uh, quite a bit about Repulsion. And really, I mean, it's too easy to just say Polanski's Apartment Trilogy, boom, and put it on a shelf, we're done with it, because Polanski explores these themes so often, 
And, you know, there are echoes from some of his earliest works to some of his latest works, like things like I, I would love to sit down and do a double feature of Knife in the Water and Death in the Maiden. I think those two films, even though they're separated by, gosh, 32 years, I think it is, they really speak to each other for me. And then even when it comes to, you know, two or three films after the tenant, something like frantic. I, you know, the the whole idea, of the paranoia, and uh, I think it it well, it starts in a hotel room. So hotels, apartments, pretty darn similar as we've talked about. I mean, that whole thing of like making somebody feel like they're crazy, and it's it's funny to me that I think there were like two or. three three different films over the last couple of years where it's almost the exact same as frantic, but it's like, it's frantic on an airplane or frantic, you know, in this location. And it's like, gosh, Polanski did this feeling of paranoia and all this so well in 1988. And it just feels like we're kind of catching up with some of that now with some of the, the movies that have come out lately. And it's like, gosh, guys, you know, it, like I still think that one of these days people are going to look back at the ninth game and realize that it's actually a really good movie. I was literally about to say the same thing. I was like, I was. Lit- Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't rule the ninth gate out. It has it has a couple of sequences that are absolutely incredible. Um, it's not you know it's probably an uneven experience beginning to end, but there are there are moments in that movie that are so palpably powerful and, and impacting in in the way that only Polanski can do it. Well, I would say even the apartment of Carnage really is you know, that that set you know using the apartment as a set in carnage and just that uncomfortableness of that is it kind of speaks to it i think the tenant is consistent with all of polanski's work <laughs> and i don't think it's part of this <clears throat> grand uh trilogy um i don't think polanski sat down and said i will make a trilogy about apartment dwelling uh, you know, I, I I think it's part and parcel with with all of the work that he's done. He's exploring the, the similar themes and everything. Yeah, it's a it's a literal it's a hyper literal you know way of looking at at the work and sort of stick it into into the compartments. It's it's um you know, there's so there's a lot of similarities to Chinatown in this movie and you know the thing that that I think that that carries his stuff across is is obviously i mean we don't know that much about what drove hitchcock you know personally um to have the <clears throat> the extreme level of genius that he did in, in um sort of capturing you know the emotions that he was playing with in polanski's case we do i mean his his childhood was very specifically traumatic and you know imagining a child um you know hiding under an assumed name you know in the warsaw ghetto during this nightmare um in krakow i mean and that fear, that look at the world and, and people who were your friends six months before are now literally out to kill you. I mean, that's imbued in all of his work. And it's, it's not to hyper literalize him because he's a masterful artist, but it's, it is, it is on a certain level inseparable. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Intellectual decay! Turn it off and rot your brain! The are just a typical American family. The only thing they're missing is a pet. But have we got a surprise for them? You see, Stanley Putterman's new satellite TV has just gone on the blink. And it's drawn in a creature from outer space. Like all new pets, this one's causing a little trouble around the house. 
and he's eating the Potamans out of house and home. In fact, it seems like this creature will eat anything. Well, just about anything. She looked right at my studs and cooled out. This dude's into metal! Now, it's up to the kids to break the creature of its bad habits. I said shut up! But he's not responding well to discipline. Children, please, I mean you no harm. I am Pluthar, here to save you. The Padamans finally got themselves a pet, but they never even had a chance to give it a name. Terror Vision from Empire Pictures. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Terror Vision, where we move out of the apartment and into suburbia. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Alex and Jamie. Jamie, what is the latest with Movie Geeks United, sir? We're still doing general shows where we talk about new and classic releases, and uh, we do those every Sunday. And in terms of special series, I'm still working on episode six of our Kubrick series, uh, and I think I'm, I, I, I might be on the verge of uncovering never before heard uh, Kubrick audio. Keep your fingers crossed them. Uh, but there's also um, our Tinseltown Tragedy series, <clears throat> which we've done. Peg Entwistle, uh, an actor named Krista Helm, uh, who was murdered in 77, and The Black Dahlia. And so our next episode, it, it's kind of unavoidable, and it connects to this uh, show on The Tenant in some way. I, I, I've got to do something on Manson. Uh, so, uh, but I, I don't want to do it on Manson or, or the girls or any of that. I, I'd like to do a show respectful of the victims and kind of explore who they really were in life. And so I'm, I'm starting with Stephen Parent and I've got a lot of his classmates um, that can talk about what kind of kid he was. Um, I think that's probably the most valuable way to approach this. And it's something that doesn't really exist it's certainly not for for Stephen Parent who who most times is a forgotten victim of of the Manson gang. Yeah, Alex, I know that you like uh Kubrick. I mean, you've, you've mentioned him a few times and you really owe it to yourself to check out what Jamie's done with the Kubrick series on Movie Geeks cuz it is fantastic. I mean, it is to me and again, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, Jamie. It's kind of the gold standard for me what you guys did like listening to your episodes on Clockwork Orange and The Shining. I mean, it was just like, this is what I aspire to be because they were so well done. That's Thank fantastic. You. Thank you. The Kubrick series.com. Thank you. And Alex, I know you're uh, a little bit more than busy these days. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately. I'm working on several projects at the moment. Um, the Zappa one, I think, has gotten, you know, a lot of people know about it. I've been on that for a couple of years and got a couple of years in front of us. We've been, we're granted access to his entire vault, um, which had never been preserved, much less seen. So, uh, you know, raised a bunch of money through Kickstarter and spent the last two years with my team painstakingly preserving um, all of that work. And we're almost done. Um, and then we'll start working on the documentary. In the meantime, I'm making, um, a couple of other docs, and uh, one of them um, uh, I can't actually talk about, uh, the other, but I, I will be able to soon. Um, it's a slightly sensitive subject matter. And then 
I'm doing one on uh, sort of the future of, of technology, looking at uh, the crypto movement, you know, decentralization, Bitcoin, the blockchain, all these crazy things that are going on in our world right now and, and the incredibly fascinating people who are driving them. Uh, so it's more, I'd say, more a movie about people than it is about tech because uh, we're li- living in a really interesting time. So uh, I'm, I'm doing that doc at the moment as well. Is that going to be part of the uh, the doc trilogy? Or sorry, the tech trilogy? <laughs> exactly. That's Downloaded, my, deep yeah. web, and then... Yeah. This was all mapped out on like a bunch of index cards when I was nine years old. And, you know, I just put them in a shoebox. And when the time was right, I just, I just enacted my master plan. You and Al Gore came up with the internet and the rest of the system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're all just living in his world. Can you tell me, what was the movie that you made called Trump's Lobby? Um, I made two films for Laura Poitras. Uh, she has a, uh, an amazing uh, organization uh, with Charlotte Cook and AJ Sh- uh, Schnack was on that at the time called Field of Vision. Uh, it's, I think it's fieldofvision.org. Um, and they are basically a cinematic, it's cinematic uh, journalism in the sense that you're telling true stories, which is kind of what I do anyway, but you're doing it from a cinematic perspective and not a journalistic perspective. So you're making, you know, films that have an aesthetic drive. Um, and I made two for her. I did one on, on the, the, the imprisoned journalist, Barrett Brown, uh, it's called Relatively Free. I went to Texas and filmed him being released from prison and his drive across Texas to go to a halfway house. And then I made one uh, where I snuck into Trump, Trump's lobby right after the election and filmed the incredibly surreal nature of Trump, uh, Trump Tower's lobby um, with all the press and the, all the, the people coming in and out to go pay homage to the new king. And both of those are at fieldofvision.org. And I'm, I'm working on another film that's sort of in the First Amendment you know, political space uh, as well. And I'll, I'll be able to talk about that soon. Are you big on the Twitters or any of that? Is there a good place for people to keep up with you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Alex Winter on Twitter. It's just A-L-X-W-I-N-T-E-R. And uh, we, we tend to keep that fairly active. I think there's a Facebook page too. I just uh, uh, I mostly, uh, I mostly communicate through Twitter because it's easy. And I spend most of my time reading the news so I can do both at once. Yeah, it's kind of a, a great news source these days. It's like, oh, God, what happened now? Yeah, it's, it's like sort of like opening the arc at the end of Raiders every morning. But <laughs> <laughs> And your face. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I just I just have to commend Alex because he's he got on the phone at seven o'clock in the morning to talk about something like the tenant. It's a pretty heavy movie. And I'm just I just want you to know, Alex, if you're available tomorrow at 6 a.m., we'll be talking about Shoah. Uh, <laughs> well, if, we, if you want to get up at four and do night and fog, I'm game. So you know. Oh wow! Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode. As long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.